Hi, you're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Naima McCloskey, the CEO and founder of Fearless Futures. And this is the show where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods for equity and inclusion. I'll be sharing new perspectives as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. In this episode, I'll be sharing answers to questions we've received from listeners of this podcast series. As we released earlier episodes, lots of people got in touch to ask questions that had come up for them. Realising there was probably a lot going on for folks, we also opened up the opportunity to ask any questions in our newsletter. Over the course of this episode and the following, I'll be offering the answers to a select set of questions that we received. Enjoy! So here's one of those questions. In my company, people often feel that they are being silenced when it comes to inclusion issues. They say there isn't space for debate. What do you make of that? Should there be more debate to bring people into the conversation? So the short answer is no, there should not be more debate. The long answer is as follows. Um, And there are a kind of a few things that I think are really, really important to unpack when it comes to this issue of certain people feeling that they're being silenced when it comes to inclusion issues. And I'm going to take this to mean that they feel like they can't say what they used to be able to say, for example, because that's the context that we have actually heard this kind of emerge from clients as well, actually. So let's kind of look at this in the round. Oppression is loud and it is not silent, okay? So we don't need conversations that amplify the kind of the case of oppression or are on the side of oppression to kind of advocate (laughs) for oppression, right? Um, And so if we're in spaces that are focused on equity and inclusion, the only reason why you might feel like your voice is being silenced or your ideas or your opinions are if you are on the side of and are advocating for ideas or action or policy that furthers oppression right that's the that's the kind of bottom line what i think often happens is that people who feel silenced um often are actually people that feel are actually kind of using the word silence to describe the feelings they might have of feeling like really really uncomfortable um with realizations they're having about themselves and the world so it might be that they're kind of really experiencing the discomfort that comes when a mirror is being held up to you in some way and we don't like what we see you know the kind of the confrontation that emerges when we realize oh i'm actually um really committed or invested in ideas that i'm now seeing are actually ideas that are underpinning various systems of oppression Um, and now that I've seen this there's some I feel kind of at odds with myself and who I am and I'm now going to repackage that as saying I feel silenced and kind of sidelined for my thinking or who I am in the world that's what I think is actually going on when the term silence is being used um, in reality 
And it might mean that what they're also saying is I feel silenced because I don't feel comfortable or I'm no longer comfortable saying things that I would otherwise have said were it not for this learning space that's actually focused on anti-oppression and building equity into our um, working lives and society. Now, I think what's really important, whether it's in relation to this question of, you know, being silenced or or not, um, is that no one owes you or anyone, nobody owes anyone a space or airtime to say things that are furthering oppressive ideas. If they are people that don't agree with those ideas, um, or if you're in a learning space specifically dedicated to challenging those ideas. Okay, so no learning space owes a participant further space and airtime to air the very ideas that the whole kind of program or an internal inclusion policy is working to challenging it makes really it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense but what we do see of course is that now in certain geographies for example in the united states um you of course have the first amendment um which is pertaining to free speech Um, So Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So there's um, this is this is documented and a lot of um, the time this kind of question of the First Amendment and free speech kind of um, gets a little bit weird, if I'm honest, um, insofar as people... Um, in companies feel that their right to free speech is being curbed if they're not able to say whatever idea that may or may not be anti-inclusion or it might not be in service of equity if that's the way that the company wants to operate and it might be furthering oppressive norms ideas behaviors and so on but because of this free speech concept there's a confusion that they have this right to say whatever they want. Now, of course, the free speech, um, the First Amendment is really about protecting individuals' access to speech in relation to the government. So preventing effectively government censorship of an individual's right to to dissent effectively from, from government action. Um, or from the powers of government. And of course, that's a really important right to have when the power imbalance between the government and an individual is so vast that you need something um, to curb what could otherwise be a government abusing its power and effectively moving into kind of authoritarian territory, for example. Now, of course, that is not the case when we're talking about private companies who have the right to kind of set the values that they want to be operating within with uh, you know for their employees and, and other members of staff now free speech therefore is often seen as an absolute principle when we actually know that in most countries there are anti-discrimination laws um that actually already um curb people's speech should they get in the way of 
people who live within certain protected characteristics, for example. So there's already a curb on people's free speech. But let's be really clear that the right to free speech, aside from when we're talking about, you know, in relation to the government um, and, you know, an individual's rights to, to kind of dissent, I would say, is what is really happening here in this context, um, is not the same as having a right, as some people think they should have, to say whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, to whoever they want, without consequence. And so feeling silenced in the context of inclusion and equity work that sometimes emerges for folks who live and are sort of beneficiaries of various systems of oppression, um, feeling silenced is actually probably, I don't feel like my ideas are welcome here and people might not like me for my ideas. I think I might be being sidelined. Maybe I've said something really racist and people don't like me anymore. Now, free speech doesn't mean people have to like you. Nobody owes you Nobody owes you that. And nobody, again, I must be really clear on this, nobody owes anyone else airtime for them to spout further racist, transphobic, disabled um, ideas, okay? that's We have to be like super clear on that. Inclusion doesn't mean I get to say whatever the hell I like and everyone has to listen, right? Equity work isn't that. And, I, and I've already touched on in previous episodes why inclusion can sometimes have us think that that's what we need to do. Oh, all ideas need to be included. No, they absolutely don't. And we need to be like really, really firm on this. Now, we therefore at Fearless Futures do not believe as the kind of the question sort of asked you know should there be more space for debate we do not believe there should be any space to debate racism its existence its usefulness whatever you want racism is not a debate and it's not a debate in our context like obviously you can have a debate with your mates down the pub if you so choose and no one's preventing you from doing so but in a learning environment that is focused on challenging um, inequities, challenging oppression, and moving towards equity in our kind of working lives and society more broadly, it would not make a huge amount of sense for us to say, tell us all the good things about racism. I mean, it just doesn't, they're irreconcilable positions. So in our universe, these systems of oppression are not debatable. And actually, we would say that kind of seeking to debate or to air kind of both sides of the of the problem is why there is so rarely progress in our organisations. When we set up something as a debate, we're sort of engaging with the possible premise that there might be some parts of oppression that are worthy of being kept. Or indeed, actually, that we are going to set up a debate to refute the existence of racism in the first place. And that we think is extremely, extremely dangerous. Um, and frankly, if that's your starting point, there will be no progress made in your organisational context. I can be absolutely sure of it. And so by removing this kind of possibility of debate, um, we are signalling very clearly that these ideas are not welcome here. And that we should be okay with that. We should be okay in our organisations of signalling very loudly that, or in fact going beyond signalling, of stating very loudly that certain ideas are not welcome and they will not have a comfortable, cosy environment to grow. It will be a hostile environment to ideas, behavioural norms that further oppression. Now, when we say that we don't um, permit debate or debate is not the paradigm in which our learning takes place, that doesn't mean that we don't um, explore 
the ways in which oppression plays out. And those are very kind of distinct ways of going about learning and equity work. So in our learning, we are actually very committed to unpacking and airing ideas that are in the mainstream and present in dominant culture. So when I say that debate isn't possible, I'll I'll kind of give you an example of how something might emerge in our learning and ways um, of, of kind of handling it and managing it. For example, people or someone might genuinely believe that surveillance of Muslim communities is necessary for our, um, ours in inverted commas, collective safety. This is in fact not a fringe idea. This is in fact a very common belief and idea within mainstream thinking and within dominant culture, dominant ideas about how we should organise society. So if someone were to say that when we were exploring Islamophobia, we don't respond with, you cannot say that. That that wouldn't be productive in our learning context. Instead, what we do is we engage in questioning of what's going on with that particular idea with the wider group and the person who kind of raised that themselves. We explore, therefore, the underlying logics that give an an idea like this real currency, um, such that it is lived out in policy, laws and institutions, um, which you'll know from earlier episodes, you know, what we collectively call structures. So structures are laws, policies and institutions. So, for example, in our learning, we might say that if we do believe that Muslim communities must be surveyed, what negative ideas do we have about Muslim people? And, you know, inevitably what would emerge is something, you know, along the lines of that Muslim people are guilty or they're suspect or they're dangerous by virtue of their Muslimness. Now, we unpack all of this not to um, condone it or to endorse it, but rather to surface it so that we all have a shared understanding of what's really going on when these sort of banal phrases and ideas that we might hold on to that we're receiving in the media from friends, neighbours and so on are kind of put out into the world. It's really important when we're thinking about this. I often use the analogy with my participants that, you know, we're sort of like scientists in laboratory and we're you know we've got our head torch on or you know we've got our goggles and we're sort of digging right in there to understand what's going on it doesn't mean we have to like what we see it doesn't mean we even have to agree with it but we have to kind of surface it so that we can see exactly what's going on so in the work that we do we would explore the structures that give power to the ideas at the kind of very root of Islamophobia of Muslim people being dangerous, suspect and and guilty. So we might look at, you know, prevent policy in the UK or, for example, the recent Muslim ban in the US. And, you know, with respect to prevent policy, you know, we might introduce to the group Um, information such as recent freedom of information requests by the Observer newspaper that have revealed that 624 children under the age of six were referred to prevent between 2016 and 2019 and 1,405 children in the six to nine age group. And, you know, this would be something that we would explore with the group. And for those who don't know, prevent policy in the UK is a government tool um, that says that it's a duty of those in the public sector, so teachers, university, librarians, doctors, to effectively police 
um, Muslim people or perceived Muslim people for signs of their assumed terrorism. It exists within the pre-crime um, space where everybody effectively becomes a cop of Muslim people and the everyday things that they are doing. And so what we do is support the group to really interrogate the consequences of structures such as Prevent in the UK, its impact, um, the lived realities of that for Muslim people, and really the the kind of inversion of safety, where it's actually Muslim people who are made to be unsafe under such government policy, for example. So to say we don't debate things is absolutely true, but what we do do is confront head-on, expose and explore ideas that are extremely common, have huge currency and are actually largely normalised and invisible unless we're really having our kind of antennae up for how oppression plays out amongst us, within us, through us um, on a day-to-day basis. So I, I think it's really important to kind of distinguish and disentangle what denying debate means with exploration deep deep exploration in order to arm ourselves with sophisticated analysis that breeds better skills at how we can challenge these these oppressions and it can be very powerful it's extremely transformative and debate need not be included in that at all finally when it comes to this silencing and debate um question we at fearless futures really see inclusion and equity work as a discipline um, we don't see it as a conversation um, and conversations are where debate can happen because after all, we are an education organisation, we're a team of educators. And so for us, when we enter a space of learning, it's really to support our participants to come away with a deep understanding of the underlying principles and mechanics that play out within various systems and across various systems of oppressions um, so that they can use these this analysis in their decision making um, or what have you um, so that it can be in line with prioritizing building equity and inclusion into everything that they're doing should that be their goal which we would hope it is if they've come onto one of our programs and so when things are positioned as a discipline debate is sort of a very secondary issue and you know i have to quote my wonderful colleague sarah who's our chief programs officer um she says you know if you were going to an engineering course you wouldn't demand that debate about the kind of core principles of engineering that you were being taught was permitted. You would instead be there to kind of understand those principles and and see how you can deploy them in in your work, perhaps. And this is very much the way in which um, we think it's most productive to think about inclusion and equity work, obviously in in a context that is a learning context. And All of this comes down to the parameters and the paradigm that we invite people into within our companies, within our committee, if we have an equity and inclusion committee um, or a council or what have you, is really having very clear principles up front for the ways in which we're going to engage with one another such that um, people can consent to kind of be part of of that um, grouping of people and be in alignment with 
the ways that they're going to engage when, with one another, hopefully in alignment with a shared goal, which is equity and inclusion, and using that as the kind of guiding compass for um, what they, what you do with one another, how you are with one another, and so on. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Futures podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate and share this episode with a friend. If you're interested in learning more about the work that we do at Fearless Futures, please visit our website, fearlessfutures.org. Till next time.